Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. You know, in today's gospel reading, we hear Jesus giving his disciples the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Now, here's the gospel for today. It comes to us from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. Jesus said to his disciples, In praying, do not babble like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is how you are to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus goes on to say, If you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. Now, some years ago, a group of priests in Australia were disciplined because they were making the sign of the cross, opening up the Mass, in kind of a unique way, to say the least. They were saying, in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. Now, that was wrong. Now, you say, why is that wrong? It sounds maybe a little bit creative, a little bit fun. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. But the reason why that's not acceptable is because creating, redeeming, and sanctifying, or making holy, that's what it means to sanctify, those are things that God does. But that's not God's name. That's not who he is. See, God existed before he ever created the universe. He existed from all eternity. He existed before he redeemed anyone in Jesus Christ or made anybody holy, made anybody a saint, sanctified them. Now, who God is, as opposed to what he does, is revealed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. And this is the last thing that Jesus is quoted as saying in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to pick it up in Matthew 28, starting with verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I've always found that to be a marvelously intriguing verse. How is it that after the resurrection, even being in his presence, some still doubted? That's astounding to me. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. So Jesus says to baptize people, make disciples, baptize them in the name, not names, not as if there are three gods. There aren't. There's one God, three persons in the Godhead, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's singular. This is the Trinity. And so, really what's happening here is, among other things, Jesus is revealing God as Father. That's incredible. And really, he, uh, he did this back earlier in the Gospel, of course, during the Sermon on the Mount, while he instituted 
the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father in Matthew. And so, in the Old Testament, in the time of Moses, of course, God was always the same. But our relationship with God was different. Jesus really brings it to a new level. He makes it possible for us to become sons and daughters of God. God becomes our Father. So really a question I want to ask you as you're listening to me today is, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Now, I don't want to overplay this too much, but when Jesus addresses God as Father, he uses a Hebrew word, an Aramaic word, really. It's Abba. And when Jesus says, Abba, Father, he wasn't talking about a Swedish pop music band. You know, Abba means Father in Aramaic. Now, it has been overplayed a little bit a little bit overdone by some preachers, some interpreters. They, they say that it means daddy or dada. That's not quite the case. It's not quite that uh, uh, informal, as it were. It simply means father. Abba means father in Aramaic. But, but the point is still the same, that, that sin kind of made us into spiritual orphans. But now we can come home to the house of the father. As Jesus said in another place, unless you turn and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Little children trust their father, and we need to trust God. I was reminded of this uh, recently when I was at my neighbor's house. He has a small two-year-old boy, and his son was jumping off the landing on the staircase. And it, w- it would have been quite a fall had he not been caught by the strong hands of his dad. But, but that's exactly what happened. The son had full confidence that his father would catch him if he kind of just leapt, took that leap of faith, as it were. And that's, I, I was watching that, and I thought to myself, that's exactly what faith is all about. Faith is really trust. That's another name for faith. It's trust. And so... That's what we need to do with our Father God. And that's difficult sometimes because when we look at human fathers, we look at the shortcomings of human dads, maybe even those of our own dads, sometimes it's tempting to conclude that God must be like that too. But it's not that way. It's not that way. God is perfect. That's why Jesus says at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect perfect. That's really sainthood, isn't it? Now, it doesn't mean being impeccable, uh, having no sin, not having to go to confession anymore. That's that's not possible. As it's often said, you know, temptation stops about three hours after you're dead. We're always going to have to turn to God for forgiveness, and it keeps us very humble. It keeps us depending on him moment by moment. But when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's talking about perfection in love. That's something that we can shoot for, and that's something that all the saints had. A desire to be perfect in love of God, in love of neighbor. But very often, as I said just a moment ago, human fathers uh, don't always measure up to the love of God. And sometimes we're, we're guilty of putting the emphasis in the wrong place. We're looking at human fatherhood as a model for God rather than the other way around. Human fatherhood should be taking its cues from God's ultimate fatherhood, not the other way around. But there is a crisis, obviously, in fatherhood uh, in society today. Some years ago, a book came out called Fatherless America. Fatherless America. And it talked about the fact that 
a lot of children because of the tragedy of, of widespread divorce, uh, out-of-wedlock births, uh, single moms and deadbeat dads. Many people have never really known their human father, or if they did know him, their experience was less than what they were hoping, less than stellar, to say the least. And as one theologian says, Scott Hahn, he says, for these people, the word father has meant only an aching absence or an abusive presence. And certainly the real father, Father God, wants to bring about healing and hope and restoration in our lives. So if, if you have been a victim of those things, uh, turn to him. Turn to him. There is hope. There is hope and forgiveness there for you as well. And so there's a really great hunger in our world for genuine fatherhood. I've always found it intriguing at the various World Youth Days, which were inaugurated by Pope John Paul II. I couldn't believe all the sights of young people with tears in their eyes, people who got to meet the Pope personally, whether it was uh, Pope John Paul II, whether it was Benedict XVI. And, and very often when they would meet the Pope and get to, to embrace him and it was, it was almost like they were looking for, for, for fatherhood. They were just in tears. What was it about the Pope's presence that moved them? I mean, it would seem on the surface to have nothing in common with them, not of the same age group, nothing seemingly in common save their Catholic faith. But I think it was really a desire for true fatherhood. And that's really uh, lived out in the lives of JP2, Pope Benedict, Pope Francis, and really... The word Pope means Papa. It means Father. But the only one that can truly provide the kind of fatherhood we're looking for is God the Father himself. He gives us the Pope as a spiritual father. But we really need that. We really need fatherhood to fill that, that, that void, that ache that we all have in our lives. You've been listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. We're talking about the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, uh, from the Gospel reading today at Mass. Well, St. Augustine once said this, all of us, he, he said basically that all of us have a God-sized hole in our hearts that only can be filled by God himself. In his masterwork, The Confessions, he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And trust me, he knew this from experience. St. Augustine himself before he became a saint, was quite the sinner. In fact, he, he was a deadbeat dad himself. He fathered a child out of wedlock. He had a rocky relationship with his own dad. He found it really, really difficult himself to call God Father. But he knew ultimately what he, what he found in the end was that our hearts will always be restlessly wandering until they return home to the house of the Father. That's where we'll find all the necessities of life. Uh, not in the world, so to speak. When we love the creation rather than the creator himself, we come up empty. St. Paul talked about this in chapter 1 of his letter to the Romans. Uh, in Romans, St. Paul kind of gives a big bad news argument before he gives the good news of the gospel. And in Romans chapter 1, he says this, beginning with verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, and Paul goes on to give many, many more uh, diabolical examples of what results from rejecting God, his creation, and ultimately, his fatherhood. So what kind of a father is God, after all? How does he want to provide for the needs of his children? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas said that everything a Catholic needs to know is really three things. So let's just follow what he says here, the angelic doctor. Let's, let's keep it simple. This is kind of Catholicism 101, as it were. So St. Thomas Aquinas says that everything a Catholic needs to know is basically three things. Number one, the Apostles' Creed, and that's what to believe. Number two, the Ten Commandments, what to do, you know, how to live. And the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, what to pray. And if you think about it, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is also arranged along these lines too. So I really like this. What to believe, the creed, what to do or how to live, that's the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, what to pray, how to pray. It's really the model prayer. It's a great template for prayer. And as the author Peter Kreeft likes to say, he says, the Lord's Prayer is the perfect prayer because it was given to us by the perfect prayer, (laughs) Jesus. In fact, you know what Jesus is doing right now? In heaven, as we speak, he is praying for you by name to the Father and for me too. It's an incredible thought. This is what Jesus is doing after the resurrection, after the ascension. It's amazing. Let's look at, again, uh, St. Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says this. Uh, St. Paul writes, It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. That's incredible. He goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah to that. And all of Romans 8 is just so inspiring. 
We could also look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, which says this. The writer says, Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. He's our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And then if we look at the book of Revelation, the revelation that was given to St. John, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we read this. He who conquers shall be, and this is Jesus speaking, by the way, to the church at Sardis. He's kind of dictating this letter to, to John. He says, He who conquers shall be clothed like them in white garments, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's what Jesus will do for us. He will confess our name before the Father and before his angels. We've got to stay faithful. This is all so encouraging. And so that's what Jesus is doing for us right now. He's praying for you, and he's praying for me too. And his prayer for us, part of his prayer for us, I think, is that we learn how to pray too. You know, the disciples once came to Jesus. Now, in Luke's version of uh, the institution of the Lord's Prayer, in Luke chapter 11, you can look this up later in your Bible, the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, they must have been very, very impressed by watching him pray. That, that, that must have really moved their hearts. And I'm reminded of how people used to come to see Pope John Paul II, and very often they would have the chance to celebrate Mass. If they were a special visitor, they could celebrate Mass with him in his private chapel. But before the Mass would begin, people would come in and find him just praying before the tabernacle. And sometimes he'd just be groaning. Obviously, as Pope, the weight of the world was on his shoulders, but it reminded one of what it says about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit expresses prayer for us in groans that words can't possibly describe. And and that's that's almost what JP too was doing. And so seeing him pray was incredibly inspiring. How much more inspiring would it have been to see our Lord pray? And so there's no surprise that his disciples would want to learn to be more like him in that regard too, because that's what it means to be a disciple. It means to it means to be like your teacher, to be like your rabbi. And Rabbi Jesus, his response to them was to give them the Our Father, to give them the Lord's Prayer. Some even called it really the Disciples' Prayer because it it actually would be impossible for Jesus, in in a way, to pray that himself. You know, forgive us our trespasses. Well, he has no sin. He is sinless. So uh, this is something that's really for the disciples uh, more than him. But we do know this. It was probably not something off the cuff. When Jesus was asked, you know, please teach us to pray, I don't think he made this up on the spot. This is really what his whole life on earth was about. What his life from all eternity was about as God the Son, communing with his heavenly Father, communicating with his heavenly Father. That was Jesus' very lifeblood. And really, all of his life, you could say, was a prayer. He used to slip away from the crowds, Uh, during the height of his ministry, to pray early in the morning. 
He often took his disciples to quiet places to try to get them away where they could pray. So when he teaches on prayer, this is something we all need to pay very, very close attention to. So let's take apart the Our Father. Let's let's take apart the Lord's Prayer line by line to see what it says here. Well, let's start with the first couple words of the prayer. Our Father. Our. Let's start with the very first word, just the our. And it, uh, as Scott Hahn wrote about in his book, Understanding Our Father, he used a, a lot of puns in his writing, and he had a good one for this, the hour of power. <laughs> uh, you might remember the Protestant televangelist Robert Schuler, who had a TV show called The Hour of Power from the Crystal Cathedral in Orange County. Well, that now belongs, that building now belongs to the Catholic Church. But uh, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, she thought that, that this word, hour, was so powerful so beautiful, she actually found it really hard to get past this when she prayed. And that's what the church is all about. The church is the mystical body of Christ. We're all members of that body. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And sometime later, St. Paul was kind of knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus as he's trying to round up more Christians and throw them in prison. Now, we don't know whether Paul was actually on a horse or not. When you see paintings of his Damascus Road conversion experience, he's always kind of knocked off of a horse. Well, the scripture says nothing about a horse in Acts chapter 9, which is one of the places you can read about uh, this event. But we do know this. Jesus spoke to him from heaven, and he said to Paul, well, he called him by his, by his former name, Saul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus equated his people with himself because the church is the mystical body of Christ on earth. And St. Paul himself would write so beautifully about that uh, later on after his full conversion in his letters. And I guess you could kind of say that it's a little bit like the Godfather movies. And if you if you enjoy the Godfather movies, Marlon Brando, uh, they're just pretty powerful. And when you're the Godfather's son, as Michael Corleone uh, was in the movies, you're part of the family. And when you mess with the family, you mess with the Godfather, right? And that's exactly what's going on here. When it comes to the church, in First Corinthians chapter chapter three, Paul says that you are the temple of the living God, and whoever destroys God's temple will be destroyed himself by God. So this is amazing. Re really, Jesus comes to us in three ways. He comes to us, of course, in his physical body, his incarnate body, which is now resurrected, ascended, glorified at the right hand of the Father. He also comes to us sacramentally in the Eucharist, the real presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. And he's also present in his mystical body on earth, the church, his living presence in you and me, the baptized who are in a state of grace. So, this is all part of the incredible background. We pray those words, Our Father. God sees us praying alongside the Pope, alongside uh, the person sitting next to you in the pew at church. All of the members of the body of Christ on earth, 
being purified. Uh, we're, we're called the church militant on earth, the church being purified in purgatory, and the church triumphant in heaven. We're praying all together, all the angels and saints with the Blessed Virgin Mary. We're all praying this prayer together. We're all connected in this hour, our Father. So St. Paul learned this lesson very, very well. And later on, he was able to say, he was able to write, if one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So it's not just me and Jesus. Uh, Very often in non-Catholic circles, you'll, you'll see this kind of mindset. It's just me and Jesus. Jesus is my personal savior. No, the church is part of it. You're saved to be part of a community. St. Cyprian of Carthage says, you can't claim to have God as your father without having the church as your mother. It's very, very important to be part of the body of Christ. And so that's really important, our father. Well, let's look at the next word, father. Now, we talked a little bit about the fatherhood of God before, but I want to say that fathers do a few different things. In order to be a father, first of all, you've got to generate life. And Peter Kreeft, he once wrote these words. He said, fish fathers give fish life, cat fathers give cat life, human fathers give human life, and the divine father gives divine life. That's what we Catholics call grace. This is really the very life of God. It's more than divine favor. And when we Catholics talk about God's grace, it's not just being in his good graces. It's not just his divine favor towards us. It's God living in us. And this happens at baptism. When God washes away our sins, fills us with the Holy Spirit, and makes us a new creation in Christ. He gives us that life. So to be a father, you've got to generate life. And God certainly is the source of all natural life. Ultimately, all all things that are in creation go back to God. But also, he's the source of our supernatural life as well. It's given in baptism. It's restored through confession. It's strengthened through the other sacraments like confession, confirmation. And of course, it's nourished by the greatest of all the sacraments, the Eucharist. The most important one is baptism because it gets us in the door. It makes it possible for us to receive all the other ones. But the greatest sacrament is the Eucharist because it's God himself. So all of this is what St. Peter talks about in one of his letters when he says that we are partakers, we are sharers of the divine nature in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4. This is amazing. So that's one of the things that fathers do. They generate life. Without that, you can't be a father. It's no different with God the Father. He gives us natural and supernatural life. That's all the time we have for today, but if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio, and I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless.